Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's outpost in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, March 5th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The coronavirus crisis is getting increasingly serious in the U.S. We'll talk about what you should do if you're freaking out right now. Personally, to de-stress, I watched Contagion the other night. Next, our stat colleague Aaron Broadwin will join us for a discussion about Google's deals with hospitals to obtain de-identified patient data. We'll talk about whether it's even possible to de-identify medical information in 2020. Then we're going to talk about China's biotech scene. Jonathan Chan, a journalist who just launched a new newsletter on the subject for stat, calls in from Hong Kong to tell us more. So before we get into this week's actual podcast, Adam and Rebecca, I understand the two of you got into something of a fight on Twitter this week. So here's what happened. A Twitter account representing a group of progressive doctors tweeted out a link to a Stat Plus story that Rebecca had written this week about the Google patient data sharing deal. So these doctors noted that Rebecca's piece was behind the paywall, essentially kind of criticizing uh, the fact that Stat and Google are an example of what they said was health industry profiteering. So I found this very annoying. So I decided to uh, clap back, as the youths say these days, to explain how stats business works. You know, quality journalism costs money to produce. And as a public service, Stat has decided to make all stories about the spread of the coronavirus free and in front of the paywall. And so to support that reporting, Stat is asking readers to pay for stories like the one I did about Google. The broader point, though, is that Damien, Adam, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to Stat Plus. You know, our, our colleague Helen Brandswell has been doing just amazing reporting on the coronavirus crisis. She and other Stat reporters have put out more than 100 stories on the outbreak so far. And if you want to support this work, the best way to do that is by buying a subscription to Stat Plus. So you can subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, you can enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year by using the code POD. So we hope you enjoy Stat Plus and we advise you to steer clear of arguing on Twitter. Thanks for listening to the podcast. At this point, the global coronavirus outbreak is a story that really doesn't need an introduction. So let's just dive into a discussion of recent events. Rebecca, let's start with you. You're on the West Coast where most of the U.S. cases and deaths, sadly, are happening right now. How are you feeling and what are you seeing out there? Yeah, so I saw a person wearing a mask in San Francisco the other day. I will say in general, though, things are, are pretty normal. You know, grocery stores are fully stocked. You know, it's I think the photos that have been circulating online of, of these empty aisles don't entirely match up with sort of what I'm seeing day to day. I think I am, like a lot of people, concerned about international travel. You know, my dad is, is traveling in Asia right now, and, and I have a trip scheduled in a few weeks to Mexico. And, and so uh, feeling a little unsure about whether uh, proceeding with those plans are, are a good idea. And Damien, what's the mood in New York right now? I think mostly normalcy has prevailed. But in terms of people on the street, it does it does feel mostly normal. I think, um, you know, as a dedicated New York One watcher, uh, there has been a lot of fantastic man on the street interviews with people who seem to have come from like central casting of like 
braggadocious, tough New Yorker. So I've been treated to lots of Brooklyn accents explaining that New York has endured much worse than the coronavirus, and it will endure this just as well. And Adam, how about the scene in Boston? Are, are people panicking there? <laughs> yeah, and we're. I think we're a hardy breed here, or maybe it's just the fact that there haven't been any confirmed cases in the, at least in the Boston area. You know, we've had a couple in Massachusetts, and you know, there's been kind of a, a very small cluster in Rhode Island due to uh, some students who traveled to Italy. But I had to say, like, you know, I think like you guys, like, I haven't really noticed any noticeable uptick. I mean, yeah, you see some people occasionally, some people wearing masks, you know, particularly on the subway. You know, I was in the grocery store this weekend. And, and there were no shortages. So, you know, it hasn't sort of manifested itself in any sort of panic or, you know, sort of extra nervousness that you can pick up. So I wanted to pivot over to uh, kind of a political discussion or, or maybe at least with Trump, you know, bringing the pharma executives to the White House this week to brief him on efforts to develop drugs and vaccines against the coronavirus. Damien, I think you watched the video of that meeting. Do you have any thoughts about that? I did. It, it was a little surreal. So, so yeah, so the, the White House invited the the CEOs and, and otherwise executives of a whole bunch of drug companies, including Gilead. Uh, Regeneron, Moderna Therapeutics, uh, and Sanofi, among many others. And the idea, I guess, was for the president and by extension the public to get a glimpse of what these companies are working on with respect to vaccines or potentially therapeutics for the novel coronavirus. But I mean, maybe this shouldn't have been surprising. The way the meeting evolved was the president appeared to be almost running a pitch competition, someone would tell him that they were X number of months away from human clinical trials. And then he would turn to another CEO and said, well, can you beat that? Can any-? It seemed like he was in a quest to find someone who could tell him, Mr. President, I can get rid of this thing for you tomorrow. And uh, thankfully, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the NIH was also in the room to occasionally interject and, and make sure everybody knew what we were saying, which is that the best case scenario is that a practical vaccine in this case uh, is at least a year and a half away. And so it did seem like cooler heads prevailed in time, but there are some surreal clips from that meeting if, if anybody's interested in looking them up. So, Rebecca, what do you think about what's going on inside the head of Tony Fauci these days? You know, he is kind of the government's sort of top infectious disease specialist. You know, he's a kind of almost like the most trusted man in America these days when it comes to coronavirus. And he has to sort of deal with that. And he's dealing with kind of this political element. What do you think he's thinking, you know, in the in the recesses of his brain? Oh, yeah, I, I wish I had a window in. I mean, I think it's a, a pretty fascinating job, right? Very normally low profile, pretty boring, you know, sort of the ultimate kind of government bureaucrat that's that's working behind the scenes. And, and it takes an outbreak like this um, for this role to, to kind of have prominence and to have the ear of the president. Um, and so I think, you know, with with some of the comments that, that Trump has been making publicly that have been spreading misinformation about the virus and how to respond, uh, I can imagine Fauci is, is not thrilled, but he probably realizes that to retain the president's trust, he has to tread a very fine line. So, Rebecca, you bring up a great point. Let's bring up a clip of Donald Trump speaking to uh, Sean Hannity on Fox News on Wednesday night. Report today, the global death rate at 3.4 percent and a report that the Olympics could be delayed. Your reaction to that? Well, I think the 3.4 percent is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. And uh, but based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, because a lot of people will have this and it's very mild. Uh, they'll get better. Very so, so not to get too political uh, on this podcast, but it just seems like the president is 
downplaying the coronavirus where, you know, he's essentially, you know, questioning the WHO. He's sort of questioning whether this is real. He's he's essentially telling people that if they're sick, it's okay to go to work, which is just diametrically opposite of kind of what everyone else in the public health sphere is telling people. Yeah, I think the coronavirus crisis is a sort of situation that makes everyone, no matter how uninformed they are, the ultimate pundit on Twitter. And I think Trump is the platonic ideal of this sort of phenomenon that is this arising of, of someone that thinks they know what they're talking about on Twitter, but uh, doesn't actually. So pivoting to another unsurprising thing, as the discussion about potential therapeutics and vaccines has advanced, people have very naturally wondered, well, how much can drug companies ethically charge for something that is so desperately needed by the entire world? And Adam, you conducted, I thought, an interesting Twitter poll the other day asking people exactly that. Basically, should drug makers profit from coronavirus medicines, assuming that, again, they're successfully developed and, and approved? Uh, what did you find? Yeah, so I did this survey. And, you know, Twitter is not exactly a great platform sort of for nuanced discussion. But again, I, you know, I got about 1,200 responses to this Twitter poll. And, and overwhelmingly, like oh, more than two-thirds of the respondents said that absolutely yes, Drug makers should profit from coronavirus medicines if they're successfully developed and approved. About 25% kind of gave, sort of said there was like this middle ground. And I, and the middle ground is sort of like, yeah, it's okay to profit, but maybe not too much. And, and that was sort of backed up with a lot of the comments that I received back, you know, kind of mentions in my Twitter stream after I posted the poll, um, where people were generally said like, yeah, we need to incentivize the drug makers to kind of go out and do the work, spend the money, invest in these medicines, and, and they need to get some kind of return. But like, what would be really bad is if they are um, perceived as sort of being profiteering. If they are charging exorbitant prices for for these medicines, there has to be some sort of middle ground. And we've certainly seen uh, drug companies, you know, try to anticipate this criticism or this potential criticism. Stefan Bonsell, uh, CEO of Moderna Therapeutics, which is one of the companies working on on a vaccine in very early stages, um, said the company would be, quote, very thoughtful about setting a price, end quote, if its experimental vaccine proves to work. Uh, he said that there's, quote, no world, I think, where we would contemplate to price this higher, end quote, than other vaccines for respiratory infections. So, Damien, let me ask you another question here, you know, shifting topics a little bit. How many times have you touched your face today? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, in excess of 100, I'm sure. What I've become really self-aware about in recent days is how much I touch my hair. Like, I'll wash my hands thoroughly and then just, I don't know, as a tick, just sort of like brush my hair back. And I, I'm worried that on top of my head is just a Petri dish of, of untoward infection. So alarmingly, Adam, when you just asked Damien that question, I was touching my face at the time. So I've just totally failed at this public health advice. It is so hard. I, and I and I posted this on Twitter the other day. I said, like, every time I think about not touching my face, my face starts to itch and I want to touch it. And once you're aware of it, like once you think about touching your face and you realize like you do it all the time and it's so hard not to do it. So on a personal level, Damien, Adam, how worried are you guys about this outbreak? I mean, personally, for me, I, I maybe have way too cavalier an approach to my own health. And I, I just, I don't know, I, I don't care about whether I get sick, I assume I'll be fine. Um, however, I am not the protagonist of reality. And, and uh, you know, in the context just of New York, there are a great many people who are immunocompromised or elderly or 
or etc. So my concern is, is for humanity. I personally, I, I don't know, I might get sick and then I'll take a nap, take some days off and probably be fine. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm personally worried about it, even though, uh, you know, and let me sort of take the old man of you, like where I'm I'm kind of getting to the age where like I should maybe be more concerned about it since this seems to impact people who are a little bit older, although I'm in generally good health, so I'm not necessarily worried about it. But I, I am worried sort of about kind of the way that our healthcare system can respond to this as, as infections increase and sort of just this public panic. And like, you know, Rebecca, you mentioned earlier, like these scenes of people who are like, you know, going to Costco and like wiping out gigantic warehouses and buying up all the toilet paper or canned goods. Um, like I said at the beginning, I did watch Contagion um, the other night. And like, you know, while that's sort of a Hollywood version and, and you know, Gwyneth Peltro dies within the first 20 minutes of the movie, but like, you sort of can see, like, from that, where this, if this gets out of control, like, you know, it's a movie, but it's also sort of plausible. And I don't want to be too alarmist, but, like, it does in the back of your mind worry me a little bit. Next up, we're going to talk about whether privacy is dead. So to back up a sec, uh, one of the biggest stories in health tech these days is the proliferation of deals in which hospitals are sharing de-identified patient data with tech companies. Now, perhaps the most high-profile example of this is Google, which has struck research deals with hospitals at the University of California, San Francisco, and the University of Chicago, as well as commercial deals with health systems like Mayo Clinic and Ascension. Joining us today to talk about the implications of all of this is Stat Health Tech reporter Erin Broadwin. Erin joined Stat late last year, and she's been covering Google and the other big tech companies moving into healthcare from the San Francisco Bay Area. Erin, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. So, Erin, when hospitals share de-identified data with a company like Google, what exactly are they handing over? That is a great question. They're handing over any number of things. Um, these data sets could include everything from a physician's notes to a phone call between a doctor and a patient to x-ray images. Those data sets are technically de-identified, so that means they're scraped of personal identifiers like names and birth dates. Um, there are actually 18 different levels of PHI, or personal health information, that are supposed to be removed to make this data anonymous. So what they'll often do is they'll either substitute, you know, someone's name, say Adam, with something like user one, or they'll be shuffled around so you can't match them. So Adam, if you were to be included, you know, in this data set, we wouldn't be able to say, okay, Adam has X health condition or whatever. It would merely say, you know, X person has this condition and we wouldn't be able to match them up. We wouldn't be able to identify you. But as it turns out, this whole de-identification deal um, may not actually matter all that much um, because the data might not be completely de-identified to start with. And that's where this Google study comes in. And so how exactly is all of this legal? The federal privacy law, HIPAA, gives healthcare providers pretty broad latitude to share health information with third parties. So that's even if it's identifiable information, actually. So so long as it's been being used for clinical purposes in general, um, you're good. So typically, um, these arrangements are done through what are called business associates agreements, or BAAs. But the terms of those agreements, unfortunately, are fairly opaque, and they're often kept private. So for patients like you or me, it's it can be hard to say whether health systems or tech companies are, are actually doing a good job of, of keeping our data private. 
So, Rebecca, you've been reporting on these issues as well. Most recently, you published uh, Google contracts showing the anatomy of the tech company's deals with UCSF and the University of Chicago. Um, What did these contracts reveal? Yeah, so it was really fascinating to be able to read the actual contracts that uh, hospitals struck with with Google to know the terms of these agreements. I think one thing that stood out in both of the ones that I obtained was that efforts were made to protect patient privacy. For example, both contracts explicitly prohibited Google from using the data to try to identify any individual. At the same time, I think something that stood out was that Google didn't have to hand over any money to get this medical data. And this medical data is extraordinarily valuable. Uh, and, and Google, as, as we know, is worth nearly $1 trillion. And, and this idea that it was able to pay nothing to get such valuable data to help it develop algorithms uh, that could someday help it generate more revenue uh, was a pretty fascinating one. So one of those agreements you mentioned, the one between Google and the University of Chicago, got both organizations sued last year. What were they accused of doing? So Google and the University of Chicago say that the patient data that was shared was de-identified. But the law firm that filed the suit against them argues that's not true, that in fact, the data were identifiable. And there were sort of two types of data that spurred that accusation. One was what's known as free text data. These are the notes that clinicians jot down that can't be stored in in a structured way. And the other was the date stamps, the real days in which things happened at the hospital, like when the patient checked in or when the patient checked out. And this is all especially fraught with Google in particular, because Google, as we know, owns and runs geolocation tools like Google Maps and and Waze. And, you know, HIPAA was written in the 1990s. And I, I think the authors did not anticipate a world in which a company like Google would both know where you are and handle your health data. Aaron, you recently wrote about a study from Google researchers which examined some of these fraud questions around the de-identification of patient data. Tell us what that study concluded. So what they found is that even when they were using their best methods to de-identify the data, so we're talking about pulling out all the stops from working with people who manually do this to combining that manual labor with a fancy algorithm or even doing all of this with the fancy algorithm. And even when they did all of that work, they could only succeed at making 97 to I think the top was 99% de-identified or anonymous. That might sound pretty good, right? You might think, oh, well, I got a 97%. That's an A. But actually, most privacy advocates would call that a fail. And if you're dealing with data sets that include millions of people, we're talking about tens of thousands of patients um, whose sensitive information might not be protected or kept private. Well, that's uh, reassuring. Erin, tell us about the stakes here. Like, why does it matter that uh, this health data could potentially be re-identifiable? The stakes are high. Um, If, let's say, Adam's information was to get out, sorry to pick on you, Adam, that could be used in a discriminatory way. So, Someone could say, well, Adam has this, so we don't want to hire him for this job, for example, or more insidious things. And data breaches are becoming increasingly common. Um, There's a report that I was looking at recently. I think it was focused on 2019, but it found that healthcare providers reported something like 600 data breaches. um, And, you know, that's exposing the records of 40 million plus 
patients. And this is increasing. The report found that, that it had increased something like 27% from 2016, so just a few years ago. And um, the takeaway is that all of this doesn't sound so great. Well, Aaron, on that note, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. without saying that biotech has become a big deal in China. The country is home to its own unicorns, its own polarizing IPOs, and its own drug industry scandals. So we at STAT have been following the sector from afar for quite a while, but for 2020, we wanted to take a closer look at the booming industry. And that brings us to STAT China, a brand new email newsletter that brings original reporting and analysis to your inbox every Tuesday. Jonathan Chan, a journalist based in Hong Kong, is the author of that newsletter, and he joins us now to talk about it. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. So, Jonathan, what kind of things are you going to be covering in your new newsletter? Well, a lot of innovative companies are coming to the market here. Now that both Hong Kong and China are allowing pre-revenue biotechs to IPO on their board, a lot of clinical stage pharmas and biotechs have been listing here. So these are the type of companies that would be interesting to follow. The newsletter will also explore policy reforms that continue to shape the market. Um, the government has been trying to improve access to quality healthcare, making sure treatments are more affordable, and encouraging more innovation coming from um, domestic companies. So it'll be interesting to see how global and domestic biotechs adapt and operate under this evolving landscape. So arguably the biggest story in the world right now is the spread of the coronavirus in and beyond China. What are you hearing over there about how that outbreak is affecting China's biotech sector right now? The outbreak has definitely affected the whole economy, not just for biotechs. And some people have told me they've canceled all their travel plans for the time being. Um, As you probably know by now, Wuhan has been on lockdown for about a month. And so biotechs operating in the Hubei province have been the most affected. All the hospitals and research clinics around the country are focused on treating patients and containing the outbreak. So a lot of clinical trials and meetings have been put on hold. Um, That being said, a lot of positives have come out of it. The whole country has been pooling all the resources together to try and solve the crisis. You see local authorities partner with construction companies and lab equipment providers to build more labs so they can test more patients. And I think people are starting to see the benefits of something like digital health and telemedicine. So while nobody really knows how long the outbreak will stay with us, I think people will pay more attention to the healthcare sector in the long run. So Jonathan, you're based in Hong Kong, which has been one of the hardest hit places outside of mainland China by the coronavirus. At the time we recorded the podcast, Hong Kong had reported 105 cases and two deaths. What's life like in Hong Kong right now? And are you taking any special precautions? Yeah, it's a little depressing. Everyone's taking personal hygiene very seriously these days, washing their hands more frequently, trying to stay at home more and avoid crowded places. The city's been on edge the past few weeks because the outbreak coincided with the Chinese New Year holidays. And so for a while, we were bracing for a lot more cases to pop up because of the influx of people coming back to the city after the holiday break. And with the closing of borders and rumors of imports from the mainland being cut off, people started panic buying uh, masks, cleaning agents like bleach, and more recently, toilet paper. So it's been a little chaotic hunting, hunting down toilet paper, but it's starting to get better. People are really conservative about using their masks. People try to use their masks uh, more than 
a few times before discarding it. Uh, so it's been a little crazy. Yeah, it sounds like it. So you've been covering the Chinese healthcare sector for several years now. How has it changed over the time you've been watching this space? Oh, it's definitely been uh, more dynamic in the last few years. And a lot of it has to do with the government's efforts into revamping the healthcare system through uh, pushing different policies and initiatives, updating the drug administration law and the reimbursement list, uh, negotiating drug prices with pharma, setting quality standards for generics and biosimilar makers, uh, also speeding up the drug approval process. So all these policies are being implemented uh, much faster than before. And with the government rewarding companies that innovate, a lot of scientists are starting their own biotech startups and R&D programs uh, in hopes of being able to develop their new products here. And I think with China being such a big growth market for the global healthcare sector, we should see more investments coming into the Chinese market to support this new era of innovation. So the Chinese government is, is notoriously sort of opaque and, and challenging for, for journalists to cover and get accurate information. How do you think about those challenges uh, as you cover the health sector there? Uh, it's definitely challenging. Information is hard to come by um, and verify as well. You know, all we can really rely on is uh, official news sources. You try to talk to more people. It's a challenge that is pretty big to take on, but it's also fun at the same time. So kind of on that same topic, what are some of the ways that you keep tabs on biotech and healthcare news out of China? Like, aside from signing up for your newsletter, what might listeners in the US look out for if they want to start watching this space? Yeah, um, I'm happy to say that there are a couple of ways to still uh, keep up to date. Uh, the National Medical Products Administration and the National Health Commission both have English websites, which is regularly updated. It's not as detailed as the Chinese version, but it's still um, pretty informative. It's also a good idea to bookmark Xinhua's website, which is China's official news agency. And here in Hong Kong, we have a publication called the South China Morning Post, and they do a great job in covering the bio sector as well. And apart from that, I would also recommend following a couple of people on social media. So Brad Longcar of Longcar Investments. Uh, comes to China a few times a year, so he's very up to speed with the biotech scene here. Um, Amber Tong from Endpoints, Angus Liu from Fierce Pharma, and Cindy Huang from SMP Global are all, all great follows. So looking ahead to the rest of 2020, what do you expect to be the biggest news stories out of the sector, whether that's a regulatory decision or a data readout or maybe something else? Adam, I think a lot of biosimilars are expected to get approval this year. So it'll be interesting to see how they can affect the drug pricing and reimbursement situation um, like every year. But I'm also curious to see what happens with Green Valley's Alzheimer's drug, GV971. It's derived from seaweed, which is very interesting. And the drug was conditionally approved by China last year. So I'd love to see more data come out of it. And I think it's an important drug to watch because, as you know, we have not had much success in the Alzheimer's space, and GV971 works completely different from all the amyloid drugs that everyone else had been working on over the last decade. So I'm looking forward to seeing more from the data and really hoping that it will work. Well, Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Rebecca.
That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisenthal Empanada, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you're feeling about the coronavirus crisis. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And as always, if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. Please wash your hands, don't touch your face, and we'll see you next week.